Sometimes life is about pig slop and fish guts. And that was true for the prodigal son you read about in Luke 15. He's not a real figure. He is a, a story, a parable that Jesus told to illustrate kingdom principles. But I often see this young man in the story who is told as a son of privilege, born in a palace type environment, Because of his disobedience to the father, his selfishness, he wants his part of the estate now. Which to get your part of the estate now while the father was then live is in essence to wish the father dead. So there was no regard to his father at all. And he takes his portion of the estate and Jesus says in Luke 15 he squanders it with sinful living. He becomes a lover of prostitutes. He squanders all of his money and wastes everything. About that same time, a famine comes to the land and he becomes so desperate, he tries to get a job on a farm with a pig farmer. And when he's feeding the pigs one day, he is so hungry that the slop and the corn husk, the empty corn husk in the slop that he is feeding the hogs begins to look desirable to him, the Bible said. And he has this revelation that he would be better off even if he went home and his father made him a slave. Pig slop. Sometimes that's what life winds up being about. And then the fish guts is the story of Jonah. He really was a true historical figure. But Jonah, I guess you could say, was a prejudiced preacher. Jonah was received a command from God to go preach the gospel of grace and repentance to Nineveh. But Jonah didn't like the Ninevites. He didn't want them. He thought they were so wicked and so evil and so bad, they didn't deserve a chance to repent. They should have just been wiped off the face of the earth. And so God told him to go this way. He went the other way. And you know the story about Jonah and the well. Because he walks in deliberate disobedience to the plan and the call of God on his life. He winds up in the belly of a well, vomited out onto the beach. Sometimes life is about pig slop and fish guts. This week in the book of Ezra, you see a similar situation where the Jews abandon rebuilding the temple to their God. Now, the Jews abandoning building the temple to their God doesn't have the same flash and flair as the prodigal son or the well-known story of Jonah and the big fish. But when you look at this story recorded in the book of Ezra about the neglect of God's house and God's people not making first things first things, it leads us to some of our own questions. We need to ask ourselves some questions. Is God's passion our passion? Is God's priority our priority? But it also begs the question of God. What does God do when we as his people make his big things our small things? What does God do when we misplace his priorities? As we've studied through the Old Testament, we have also studied through the history of the nation of Israel, reading through the chronological Bible called the story. And what we've seen going on in Israel's history parallels what we see happening in the last several decades in our own country. Political polarization, the resistance to God and His Word, the departure from His values, the encroachment of immorality, and the lack of spiritual leadership. And we see how those things have eventually brought down divine and caused the nation of Israel to self-destruct. 
We've seen from the very beginning of the Bible, the story of the Bible is a story of exile. God created Adam and Eve because he had a passion to be with his people. But Adam and Eve sinned. And because of their sin, they were removed from the Garden of Eden. And in many ways, they were removed from God's presence. They lost intimacy with him. And from Genesis up until the book of Ezra and from Ezra up until now, the story of God and the story of the Bible is the story of God pursuing his exiled people in an attempt to bring them back into relationship with him. And as you read through this week, you find that the story in the book of Ezra is still a story of exile. The people are not only spiritual exiles having turned their hearts away from the Lord. They are literally exiles because they have been carried from their homeland 900 miles away as slaves in the nation of Babylon. God's nation had become divided. You know the history. We've gone through it for the last several weeks. There is a northern kingdom called Israel, a southern kingdom called Judah. They became idolatrous, turned their hearts away from God. He lifted his hand of protection over them. The Assyrians took over the northern kingdom and occupied it. Nebuchadnezzar came in, ransacked Jerusalem and the southern kingdom and took them back to Babylon. Their cities were leveled. Their homes were decimated. Their temples were destroyed temple was destroyed their hopes were lost and they were taken into exile and we've seen them in exile for several weeks forced to live where they didn't belong and that's what's always hard on a person to be someplace where they don't belong to be someplace where they don't feel at home and as you look at these people that are in exile we learn from them that when you're in exile if you choose not to worship and honor and obey God in exile the sense of exile gets worse and worse and the length of exile becomes longer and longer Exile may not be a word you're familiar with. We don't use it a lot today unless we're talking about some political person running for asylum somewhere or they've been exiled from a government. But it simply means being forced to live where you don't belong. An exile is not just some political refugee in another country. It's not just a distant historical event in the life of the nation of Israel. Exile is a reality that has been faced by God's people in every generation. And in some sense today, every one of us are living in exile. We are forced to live where we don't belong. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes you want to go home. You long for Christ's return and you get this sense that things are difficult down here. It's full of heartache and pain and brokenness. And you think about heaven as your eternal home and being with Jesus and reunited with people that you love. And sometimes there's this feeling of you can't wait to just get to heaven. Over the years, I've had the privilege of pastoring some elderly couples that have been married through the years and and, and many, many years. And when one of them will pass away, the conversations that I have with that living spouse is often that longing for home. The more that they, the more that they, that leaves this earth and the more of love that they deposit in eternity in heaven, the sweeter heaven becomes, the stronger their longing for home. That internal longing in our hearts for home is the aching of the heart of an exile. It could be described as homesickness, being forced to live where our heart doesn't really belong. The scripture says, I'm a citizen of another country. I'm a pilgrim passing through 
I'm headed somewhere else. This week, I, I had some really neat, bittersweet moments. My oldest son is, is approaching uh, the driving age, and so I'm thinking practically and, and also thinking emotionally, trying to find out the most uh, fi- financially feasible way to, to get him in some wheels, but also to pay for his insurance. And, and so I'm thinking through that. When, when I started driving, my first car was an old fixer-upper my dad and I tinkered with. It was in one of those seasons he was in my house, and my grandfather always drove old Ford trucks, and so there's that... that those classic old cars and so for the last several weeks Caden and I have been looking through various things on the internet and Craigslist and last week we located an old truck almost 50 years old and it's it needs some work and so it came home on a trailer but we did it we bought it and it was a meaningful experience for me and to be able to share that with him and for us to spend the next several months getting it ready to drive making it safe and dependable to drive and we're looking forward to that but when we picked it up I took some snapshots on my phone and I sat there and I couldn't wait to share this moment. Caden wasn't able to go with me to pick it up so I shared it with him first and and I wanted to share it with other people and the first thought in my mind is I wanted to tell my dad and I wanted to tell my grandpa but obviously if you know me if you've been around for a while in the last few years both my father and my grandfather have passed away and it was one of those moments where you knew they weren't there but the first reaction was to say I wanted to share this experience with them because I'm probably walking through repeating these things in my life because of their influence on me when I was Caden's age and now I'm sharing it with him and I want to invite them to be a part of that experience and they are not there and I sat there and I stared at these pictures on my phone and I had this real moment of longing. I, 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 I had all these people I could share this moment with, but it, didn't just, it just wasn't them. It didn't seem right. And, and it felt like forever as I sat in the car and I had this moment I can only call homesickness. Because those people have already gone on to heaven and, and I missed not being able to share that moment. I never, when I sat at their funerals, never thought through the moment of buying the first car for my oldest child in a way that they did for me and not being able to share it with them. So in the last few days, I have understood the aching of the heart of an exile. I have understood the homesickness that comes when you're not living where you belong, especially when some others have crossed over before you. That's how it was for the people of Israel. They longed to be back home in the capital city of Jerusalem. Here they were in Babylon. They had been captive now three generations, 70 years removed, 900 miles away from home. And there was this aching and longing in their hearts. You may have noticed as you read through this week's portion of scripture in the story that the title of this week's chapter is called The Return Home. The record of the exiles return from Babylonian captivity back to their homeland is recorded in the book of Ezra. In the video from a moment ago, you saw a farmer from San Antonio uh, read to us the scripture today from his pig farm. He covered the first seven verses of the first chapter of the book of Ezra and he read to us about an amazing turn of events. God moves on the heart of a pagan king of Persia named Cyrus. And he turns the heart of the king toward the Jews. 
And he tells them, I'm going to let you go back to your homeland and I want you to rebuild the temple. I really believe that God has put it on my heart to send you home so that you can build a temple for him to be worshipped in. But not only did he let them go back, he said, I'm going to provide you the necessary resources so that that temple can be built. So God moves on the heart of a pagan king, but then he turns the heart of the king to the Jews and he turns the Jews' hearts back towards their home to rebuild the temple. Their number one priority in going back home, the heart of the return was to rebuild the temple of God. Now God doesn't really need a house made by the hands of men. He can't be contained in a house or a temple made by the hands of men. But the temple from the time Adam and Eve were booted out of the Garden of Eden because their sin. He created Adam and Eve to hang out with them. He wanted intimacy and fellowship with them. But sin separated them from God. And from the moment Adam and Eve were booted out of the Garden of Eden, God was trying to find a way to come and live among his people. And the temple throughout the Old Testament was that way. That's why it was so important that they rebuild the temple. The temple was a picture that expressed God's desire to be with his people. It was a teaching tool. For the Jews, the temple was a visible reminder that God wants to hang out with them. It was communicating the foundational truth that God wants to be right in the middle of his people. The temple wasn't on some mountain. It was smack dab in the middle of the most populated city in all of ancient Israel, right in the middle of Jerusalem, so that anytime anyone would go past the temple, a message would be to communicate, it would be communicated to them, God wants to be with us. He wants to live in our neighborhood. He wants us to be near in proximity to him he wants to do life with us you see the people of God even though they may have been in the zip code of Jerusalem they weren't truly home they weren't truly there until God had his home in the temple and could dwell among them remember by this time Jesus wasn't on earth in the flesh it would be five more centuries until Jesus would be born God isn't in the flesh among them the temple is the place where God's presence dwells without the temple where do priests go to communicate with God without the temple where do God's people gather for the common purpose to encourage each other and to worship God Without the temple, without access into God's presence, they might as well still have been exiles living at home. Now, why does God make such a big deal about his temple? Number one, because God's passion is proximity. The reason he created the human race is because he had enough love. He couldn't keep it with himself. He wanted to share it with somebody. And Adam and Eve thing didn't work out too well because they sinned. And sin separated them from a holy God. And from Genesis 3 until right now in the book of Ezra, the story of the Bible is about this passionate God who wants to be in proximity. Proximity to his people. Through the Old Testament, it was a temple. But you find out God had a problem. He didn't just have a passion, he had a problem. And the problem was sin. Sin is what banished Adam and Eve from the garden. And sin throughout the Old Testament is what had kept people from intimacy into the presence of God. It still does today. But God had a solution to the sin problem. And we see it in Genesis where Adam and Eve hid because of their sin and shame. And God tells them to 
to take an animal skin and to cover their nakedness. It was a hint that without the shedding of blood, there would be no covering for sin. The book of Leviticus tells us that. And there is this entire system that is put in place by God that reminds us that sin has to be covered. And it keeps pointing us towards a day where the Lamb of God would literally shed his blood so that all of us would have a covering for our own sin. God has a passion and that passion is proximity to us. He wants to be with us. He has a problem and that is sin. But his solution to the sin problem is the shedding of blood. In the Old Testament it was bulls and goats. In the New Testament it was the blood of Jesus. Somebody said to me the other day, Pastor, this Old Testament is wearing me out. I love it. I'm learning more than I've ever learned before, but I'm ready to get to the New Testament. I think one of the points of the Old Testament is for us to get tired of it. It's it's to get our hearts longing for what was coming anyway. When you read the law, you find out they couldn't keep it. You read about the kings and you realize they were proud and disobedient. Then you read the prophets and nobody listened to them. And then you get your heart starts aching for something that can do what the law couldn't do. For some king that would be better than every proud and disobedient king. For some prophet that people will actually listen to. And your heart starts longing and aching for this coming king. This coming Messiah. God had a passion that was proximity. He had a problem that was sin. He had a solution, the shedding of blood. And that's what happens here in Ezra. When the people first get home, Ezra 3, 1, what do they do? They want to re-engage the presence of God. So when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, they've come back. The people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. There was unity of heart and purpose. They were there as one. Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the Lord God of Israel to sacrifice burn offerings in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they began this shedding of blood to cover the sin problem so that they are able to engage and re-enter the presence of God. And they go home to rebuild this temple, and the first thing they do is build this altar. They're zealous at first. They roll up their sleeves. The highest priority was building God's house. They sacrificed on the altar. They were of one heart. They were of one mind. But the Bible goes on to tell us that even dissenters came among them. These people said, let us help you build. And they didn't go for that trick. And so they said no. And then these people literally became agitated at them, tried to infiltrate them and discourage them from building the temple. But even then, they stayed on task. They made God's priority their priority but after a while they lost their motivation they lost their focus they begin to give less and less attention to the house of God and more and more attention to their own personal projects maybe they got physically exhausted from stacking stones and mixing mortar and became weary from the physical labor or maybe the taunts and jeers of those who ridiculed their rebuilding efforts started to humiliate them or maybe the threats of violence from their enemies became too intimidating or more than likely what happened is they just started thinking about their own personal endeavors and they got distracted what happens when God's passions become our placeholders and let me, let me explain that statement. I've talked to all three of my kids in one way or another throughout their lives with this statement. Don't let it just be a placeholder. Make it a passion. 
whether it's becoming great at music or whether it's becoming great as an athlete or whether it's being a great preacher of the gospel, you don't wake up one day having those things as some placeholder in your life without committing yourselves to them passionately. Athletes become great because they're passionate about it. Musicians become great because they're passionate about it. Preachers become great because they're passionate about it. If you're going to be great at it, you can be good at some things, but if you're going to be great at anything, it can't be a placeholder in your life just occupying time and space. It has to be something you're passionate about. What happens when God's passion becomes a mere placeholder in our life? What happens when the main things of God becomes the second things for us? What happens when God's big things become our little things? What happens when his people misplace his priorities or when we as his people get off track? Has that ever happened to you? You make this huge commitment to God and you're going to serve him and renew your efforts and you're going to read the word and you're going to pray and you're going to walk in relationship with him and you're going to commit to be in service. You're going to be in the house of God and before long, those commitments become nothing more than a failed New Year's resolution like eating healthy or going to the gym. The new wears off and we're back to our old ways. Or you're reading through the Bible and the Holy Spirit quickens your heart and inspires you to be ethical on your expense reports. And all of a sudden you see this collision coming between your bills and your bank account. And you don't know how you can avoid what's about to happen. So you get a little loose in your morals and, 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 and loose in your integrity and fill out your next expense report. Uh, and you exaggerate and fabricate your expenses or you fudge a little bit on your income taxes. Or, or maybe you say, you know what, you're younger and you're headed back to college this fall and you've seen how it worked out every time you've ever gone back and you're thinking this time is going to be different. I'm going to, I'm going to avoid those environments. I'm going to avoid that crowd. I'm going to make a stand for Christ. And, and then you get there and all of a sudden you, you, you've got these people saying, come on, man, everybody else that claims to be a follower of Christ, they're here. They're doing it. It's kind of the norm. And you start making excuses and concessions like, you know, it wouldn't hurt me to meet some new people. And before long, you're distracted. You drifted from a commitment that you made. That's what God's people do in the book of Ezra. These exiles come home and God's passion is their passion. His main thing is their main thing. But time and adversity erodes their zeal for God and his house. Before long, the temple, this picture of proximity, this symbol of God in the midst of his people is being neglected. The people's bank accounts are growing. Their houses are being rebuilt in splendor, but the temple temple of God lies in ruins. Enough time passes, 16 years to be exact, for grass to start growing over all there is of the temple, a foundation, that's it. Grass covers the footers of the foundation. Enough time passes for neighboring nations to conclude Israel's God wasn't worth any inkling of their devotion. If he was, surely they would have rebuilt his house. Enough time for an entire generation of Jewish children to look at this abandoned temple foundation like it was a forgotten construction project. And out of grace, God touches the heart of a prophet named Haggai. And he comes to the people of God with a word. In chapter 1, verse number 1, 
In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, God's house, remains a ruin? Here you see the people of God living in a good economy. They're moving into better neighborhoods and building bigger homes. The stock market is in a boon. The crops are growing. But all of their material prosperity has left them empty. They possess plenty, but they are empty. And it's almost as if this season of emptiness... This season of dissatisfaction has been brought about by God as a reminder that these things will never satisfy you when His purposes and His priorities are being neglected. Verse 5 says, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but... Never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. So what does God do when we as his people make his big things, small things? What does God do when his people misplace his priorities? When we get off track, he often leads us into seasons of God-ordained Difficulty, exhaustive emptiness, ultimately to turn our hearts back to him and back to his house. When nothing quenches our deepest thirst, when no achievements satisfy our restless hunger, when drought turns our fields into deserts and our retirements into pocket change, what can we do? God's directions are clear. Give careful thought to your ways evaluate your choices assess your strategy is God's passion my passion is God's main thing my main thing is his priority my priority in the New Testament Jesus speaks of the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 and he said Ephesus I have one charge against you you have forsaken the love you had at first consider how far you've fallen repent and do the things you did at first now don't misunderstand what I've said don't read into what I just said be careful not to read God's punishment into every difficult situation in your life that's not what I'm saying but what I am saying is this by the grace of God when we run from the father's care we often find ourselves wallowing in the mire of pig slop like the prodigal son or when we run from the call of God in deliberate disobedience like Jonah We often find ourselves on a beach lying in the vomit of our own poor decisions. And God uses the emptiness of those moments to remind us we are exiles who have gotten off track. He uses those moments to make us homesick, to make us long for proximity and closeness again, to call us back to his house and to his presence. For many of us, our story is the story of the forgotten temple we've been freed from Babylon not 
from literal foreign captivity, but we've been freed from the Babylon of chemical dependency or selfish ambition or empty days and lonely nights. We have been freed from the hollow pursuit of stuff. And somewhere in your past, you put Babylon in your rearview mirror and you came home. You came to Jesus. You gave your life to God and God's work and then came college or marriage or the kids or the promotion or the transfer, the long hours, the business trips. And with each passing day, you thought less and less about God's work and more and more about your own. Tithing then became tipping and prayers became empty cliches. You didn't really forget about God, but you didn't really remember him either. And you probably relate very well to what is written historically in the book of Ezra. And you relate to the people that Haggai prophesies to. And if you're in that place, life probably isn't really working out like you hoped. And now on Father's Day, God has pulled you up close for a face-to-face encounter. And he's saying to us what Haggai said to the people. It's time to consider your ways. It's time to wash the mud and manure of the pig pen off of you to return back to the Father's house and get after whatever it is that God has called you to do. In Haggai 1.8, he said to the people, Go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Amazingly, just like the prodigal son went home and just like Jonah eventually, after he came to his senses, honored God and preached the gospel of grace to the Ninevites, the Jews listened to the prophet. They turned their hearts back to God and they rebuilt the house. They finished it. God stirs the hearts of his people they got to work and they finished it and God once again was living among his people that was his passion he wanted to be in proximity he just wanted to be with them C.S. Lewis says if you put first things first you get second things thrown in but if you put second things first you lose both first and and second things. My attic, I guess you could call it the attic of forgotten passions. I have a stash of old baseball cards there that were really passionate. I was passionate about as a kid. My kids never really got into that. So they're still there collecting dust. Forgotten passions. I haven't looked at them in probably two decades. There's a lot of camping stuff up there. I used to use a lot. It's just sitting there. It doesn't get used a whole lot. A forgotten passion. I used to put old model cars together and probably somewhere in my mom's attic is a bunch of my old favorite classic cars that I put together and I painted and had sitting out in my room somewhere. It's the attic of forgotten passions. Things I started and never finished or things I invested time and money in for one reason or another I neglect today. And you probably have a lot of similar things in your own attic of forgotten passions. But God can never be one of them. He cannot be put in the attic of lost passion. He is either the big thing or he is no thing. The prodigal son repented and left the pig slop. Jonah repented and got out of the fish guts. The Jews repented and finished the temple for God. And I didn't forget 
I know it's Dad's Day. I know it's Father's Day. This is what I know when you read about the book of Ezra. The whole book could be a message to men. could be a message to dads. Because if you looked at the spiritual drift that happened in the nation of Israel, recorded in the book of Ezra, the drift happened because the men relaxed their spiritual passions. They led the people away. But the hope in there, gentlemen, father, is that it was the men who turned their hearts back to God and led the entire nation into a revival and a reformation. Gentlemen, dads, there is a lot weighing on our shoulders in our families. There is a lot weighing on our shoulders as a church. There is a lot weighing on our shoulders as a nation. And we have the influence to lead those under us away. Or we have the ability to lead those under us back into proximity and relationship with God. Probably no better way to express it than through the voice of this little man. Dad, you don't know it right now, but I'm watching you, watching the things you do, I'm watching the way you treat people, the way you treat me and my mom and my sister. The way you live your life is having a big impact on me. When it's time for me to choose a career and provide for my family, your work ethic will be on my mind. The time you spend with me, even doing simple things, will give me a sense of security. There will be times in my life where I struggle with integrity and I may be not sure what to do. But I will recall how you stood up for what was right, even if you could have looked the other way. Many of the choices you are making, I will also make. Please don't be afraid to show me your failures, to show me your mistakes. I will learn from them. Dad, are you listening? I'm watching. Watching to see if you really believe what you say about God. I need you to help show me the way. Show me how to live life that isn't safe, but is good. So I'm watching you, Dad, every day. You're teaching me how to live, whether you know it or not. Before we leave this morning, I want you to consider something. I want to ask you, who initiated the return home? Who initiated the... You know, you say, well, Cyrus did, Pastor. Well, if you look in Scripture, it says in Ezra 1, 
One, that the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king. So God turned Cyrus's heart, a pagan king. And then in verse 5, it says, The family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, the heads of the houses, who they had the leaders, the men, God moved on their hearts. God always initiates the return home. He always initiates the call to the prodigal to come back. He's always the one tugging on the heart of his people when we get distracted and when we drift and when we misplace his priorities. He, out of his grace, is the one that moves on our hearts. And I believe with all of my heart today that God is moving on the hearts of people in this room. Now, everybody may not run to the front of the building today and said, my heart strayed, Pastor, I need to come back home. But I believe the Spirit of God is in His grace whispering to us, come home. Make God's big things your big things. Make God's priority your priority. Make God's passion your passion. Come back. Some of us have never been there, but others of us know what it's like and we've drifted and He's calling us back. But this is what I want us to do before we leave this place. I really felt my heart that give this opportunity. Um, I won't belabor it, but the success of the day does not depend on who doesn't or does respond. I'm completely comfortable being obedient to God and nobody responding to this. But I believe that men, this message hasn't just been for men. But I want to apply it to the heart of men, especially dads, but all men in this room. Because I believe the the spiritual temperature in the heart of men set the spiritual temperature for a family, for a church, and for a nation. And I believe with all of my heart there are men in this room today who are having the grace of God tug on their hearts, trying to get their distraction turned back, trying to pull them back to the priorities of God. I'm about to pray a blessing in just a moment. And when I pray, I I want when I pray today, if you're a man in this room and you say, Pastor, I'm going to be a man today. I'm going to walk in humility. I'm going to repent before God and everybody in this room on this Father's Day. My heart has drifted. My passions probably aren't what they used to be. My spiritual intensity isn't where it was at one time in the past. And on this Father's Day of 2013... I know there are little eyes watching me. I know there are ripple effects for generations in my decisions. And I want to reconnect my passions to God. I want to come home. Responding to this doesn't mean you're living in some deep sin. It just means your heart hasn't been where it should have been. And I'm going to give you that challenge, sir. On Father's Day, right here in front of God and everybody, when I start praying... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come down at the end and if there are men gathered around here praying, I'm going to pray with them. But I'm going to give you that chance. And while I, when I start praying, I want that to be your cue. I want you to step out from where you are, sir, and I want you to lead. I want you to lead this church. I want you to lead your family in the return home. Set a new pace spiritually for all of us if you sense the tugging of God back to what matters most. I believe God can touch our hearts like he did the king. And like he did the heads of household in Ezra's day. Father, I pray that you will bless them and keep them. That you will make your face shine down upon them. 
that you will be gracious to them. That you will turn your countenance their direction. And that you will give them peace. I pray, Lord, in the same way you moved on Cyrus. And you moved on the heads of houses to bring the nation back. Will you move on the heart of men in this church? Some really good men who've become distracted. Other men who've let their hearts grow cold spiritually that need grace today. I pray today that you would call us home, that you would bring us back. And with us would come our wives and our children and our co-workers and our guys we hang out and do hobbies with. I pray, Lord, that you would turn the heart of this church and the heart of our nation back to you as you move on the hearts of men. We ask your grace and your blessing upon this Father's Day. In Jesus' name. God bless you.